Welcome to our co-hosted podcast. I'm Chuck Marple, your host. Here's me is my co-host, Karen. How are you doing today, Karen? I'm good. We have a little bit of stormy weather here today, but other than that, it's it's pretty nice. Yeah, we have sun. Yeah, we have sunny today and and warm. Um, It was overcast and cloudy, and we had a lot of rain yesterday. So you're just getting stuff that we already had, probably. Well, today we're just going to talk about one topic. We're going to talk about the lead up to January 6, 2021, and what's been talked about uh, in these various in the various eight hearings. I think one nice surprise that I think is going to must have upset the former president when he found out they're not done with public hearings. In September, we're going to have another series. What do you think, Karen, about that? I think that <clears throat> after. Cassidy Hutchinson testified that's not a big surprise. There's a lot more information to corroborate and a a lot more people seem to be comfortable coming forward that can corroborate a lot of those shocking details that she had. Yeah, it is. And it's funny. There's nothing out there that has been contrary to the things she said, even that shocking stuff in his SUV. Um, Nobody has been able to shake that because they've had confirmation from a couple of people who were directly there or have been one way there or the other. What frustrates me about this is I saw in my study of history, I saw how countries who did not have a tradition of democracy, when they tried to have democracy, it was taken away from them. Germany, after World War I, went from a monarchy to a democracy. But it was it'll be tainted by the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler. Same thing happened in Russia, same thing happened in Spain, same thing happened in Italy. I had always believed that our democracy was better than that, that our, our, our people were better than that. I'm, I'm quite upset about the situation and, you know, how we got here is beyond my ken, really, how one person can do that. I thought Germany and those places were unique. And I thought we were unique in a better way, but not so much. I think that a lot of it, it and you and I have talked about this in the past, <clears throat> not necessarily on the podcast, it goes back, you know, a, a, I'll call them generations of politics. You have mm-hmm. in Reagan's era, when they got excited about abortion, it wasn't really a thing until then and then all of a sudden you have this massive pro-life movement you know it, it almost in response to feminism in the 70s and women refusing to be barefoot and pregnant and wanting careers and wanting a life outside their home and then you use that and you peddle fear at people you know oh if we do this then there's going to be more divorces and kids in trouble and people in jail because women are working and you just use that fear and you use it with race, you use it with immigrants, you use it with LGBTQ stuff, you use it with whatever. And you you scare people that feel that they're in power. Even if they are poor and white, they still feel like they're above every one of those marginalized groups I've listed. Well, you know, you go back, just, just to keep on with that, with the, the, the Civil War, the reason that they were able to fight is so many poor people who did not have slaves were convinced that it was an attack on 
on them as well. They were sold a, a bill of, uh, of sale that was really, really, really poor. Well, you know, let's go back at that select committee from the very beginning. Nancy Pelosi did everything and made every concession to set up that uh, a, a bipartisan and nonpartisan committee who were that uh, McCarthy would have equal ability to appoint people and he would, and whoever they was would be the vice chairman. They could subpoena people and so on. So a lot more than most Democrats wanted them to give. And when he put on two people who were big and the denying of that and wanted to overthrow the electorates, if you so the voice of the people, if you want, um, she said, no, those people can't be on, on the bipartisan committee on there. So what was going to happen was he, McCarthy said, no, nope, we're not going to, we're going to take our ball and go home. So Nancy Pelosi consent, convinced two very traditional Republicans to sit on there to show that it's still bipartisan. There's Republicans on that. And in fact, the vice chairman is Liz Cheney, a very conservative Republican. Surprisingly, she's very popular with everybody now, well, other than the MAGA people. And yet now, the former president is, uh, is really going after McCarthy because there's nobody that is there to help him on the committee. Well, this committee has been a very efficient because there hasn't been all these uh, drama that would have been on there had Jim Jordan particularly been on it. So, you know, Liz Cheney's been a good, doing a great job on that. I'm very, very pleased with her, even though I would not agree with her politics. Yeah, like, <clears throat> I was really, I've only watched this one hearing so far. I, I didn't really like the idea of watching extensive footage of the January 6th attack. I didn't watch it on live when it was happening. And I, this past hearing was the first one I, I saw a whole lot of that. I've seen little snippets <clears throat> on a few documentaries and things like that. But I, I, I was scared to watch some of that um, but prior to Thursday, but I wanted to watch it for just a few minutes and I got tied up in it. And I was just really impressed with how they ran it, how they had everything, you know, queued up this video for this thing. And they really mm -hmm. gave you a clear view of what was happening in the hours leading up to the attack. Yeah. It, it, and all the hearings have been good. We've watched all, all of all of them and, uh, mostly live a couple of times we we had to tape it for because we had something else going on but for the most part we we watched all of it live and it's been very fascinating how well they have done it i mean they've been very clear that they've not going to push the mega people away from their views except maybe less of them totally trusting the former president and maybe they're they're getting kind of old of the drama that he's put out because and this is something that that he's doing even in Arizona today. He's still crying about the last election where Pence is out there. The guy who, the woman he's pushing for, because there's two women running for governor, woman he's pushing for is talking not about the past of the election. He's, she's talking about the future. And the Republican Party, if it looks at the future, stands a chance of repurposing itself. But the way they're going, uh, if they keep on following with him, the former president were in trouble, but yeah, it's it's it, it, we could we could go all day just talking about what's happening to women, 
that I think that so much of this country want to go back to at least the 1950s. And not just women, but, but women are the big one because it's 51% of our population are female in this country. And to try and, and uh, take their rights away is disgusting. But again, we'll talk about that more in the future. So one of the things that does make it so interesting is that 98% of the evidence being brought up, and it is evidence because it's been corroborated as well, is by people who were part and parcel of the Trump administration. I mean, the, the, the last one there on their, um, oh, now his name's going to escape me, but uh, there was in there was this highest person in there, the deputy uh, national security advisor. Matthew Pottinger. Pottinger, that's correct. He's, he was in there from the very beginning. In fact, one of the very interesting things, in 2020, he was the first one to bring up the seriousness to the former president of COVID, of this virus coming out of China. He was out there, and he would all, from the very beginning, wore masks to meetings when people were making fun of him for wearing masks to meetings. But he was a sane voice. I don't necessarily agree with some of his politics about China and other things, but he was the same voice out there doing this. And for him to be, be at that point and be willing to sacrifice a political career, likely, or he wasn't truly a politician anyway, because to give up that career uh, is very, very impressive. And what he said was, was damning in it because he, he saw all of those. He and Cipollone were the people there. They were, they were right in the front, uh, along with Cassie Hutchinson. Again, all this evidence given by people who were in that, and in many cases, strongly supported the policies that the former president was putting out there. Immigration and U U.S. at first and all this kind of stuff, you know, against NATO and everything. And it's just, it's amazing that all these people have seen the error of their ways, I guess, or at least the errors of his ways. I think that a lot of it is the, the footage and even just pictures, not just video of what was happening on January 6th was, was like, if you are not one of the people that was part of that, you see that and you, you've never seen anything like that before. That looks like something you'd see, you know, in Israel, Palestine in the early eighties, Lebanon, like it doesn't look like, this country. It looks like a third world country. And I think that's, that was that's what, really jarring to a lot of people. Well, it was, you know, it wasn't legitimate political discourse like some of the Republicans tried to say. It wasn't uh, uh, like tourists going through the Capitol. These people were running. I think one of the more interesting things, and they're making a lot of um, memes on it, is uh, Josh Hawley the contrary position of him with his fist raised and then see him running for his life. I mean, you saw Pence 40 feet away from the from, from disaster. He walked dignified down this, down to follow the people through. And you see Josh Holly, Holly running like a, a scared rabbit. And it was people yeah, he I encouraged. 
somebody, one of the comments I've seen today said he knew to run. He knew how scary these people were because he was part of encouraging it and whipping up this frenzy. You know, and I remember, and I haven't seen it again, but I recalled like a couple weeks after January 6th that Trump was watching it on TV and he said to somebody, why do they look so low class? Where's the rest of our followers? Why do these followers look so low class? And the person, wherever I saw that, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, was like, uh, I think you're missing something. That that's That's your base. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have done what Hillary did, Clinton did in 2016, call them deplorables, because they weren't all deplorables, but boy, they acted deplorable that day. And the worst of it, and, um, and one of the, the last hearing before this one, when they had the person who had been involved with the, the Oath Keepers in there and talked about it, and they showed about the Oath Keepers and how much planning the Oath Keepers and everything went. What I think amazed some of these people in, in uh, national security was that you had people with much, these groups with much diverse beliefs and ideas and in plans, and they all came together to attack the Capitol on the 6th of January, 2021. And I think, you know, one of the things we don't talk about enough, that this was the first time the Capitol had been threatened domestically ever. Even during the Civil War, the Capitol was always protected. It was people didn't even think about attacking the Capitol. The only people who thought about attacking the Capitol, <clears throat> excuse me, was likely the people in 9-11. And that plane didn't make it, thank God. But otherwise, and that wasn't even that was still a foreign foreign attack on us. That was not domestic. These were Americans attacking the central the the, the presidium, if you want, the central part of our democracy. Trying to disrupt why, something. I, I The part that I can't wrap my mind around is that these are the same people that want to very literally interpret the Constitution. And they're interrupting a process that is outlined in the Constitution. And, and not seeing how when they this year talk about, oh, abortion's not in the Constitution. Well, either is any way to argue this mostly of a formality count that the vice president presides over. This isn't an opportunity to override anything with an election. There is no opportunity to protest and override it. You know, there's legal proceedings to try to get recounts and things like that if you have an issue with an election, but there's not any sort of protest option in the Constitution. and we said, and we said in the last podcast, we talked about that briefly. How this group, who really wanted to give it a shot, investigate everything, could not find any precinct in all the country, any voting area in the entire country where there would have been a difference because of fraud. Not one example at the precinct level, the smallest voting level you have, let alone state, let alone enough states to overturn the election completely. This was done, and it should have been done. But but the, this person, this former president, believed that he, had, he should be there. One of the problems that he looked at is he saw that he had these big rallies, and he translated those rallies into votes. Well, 
it's not going to happen all that way. What the rallies do is show excitement. It's it's like because of his ability to to of showmanship, people wanted to be there just to say, "Oh, I've been at this rally." It had very little to do with truly believing in anything other than being part of it. I mean, it's, it's like going to a rock concert for people or something, you know. They, they, they want, oh, I'm going to go to this rally because it's going to be fun. It's going to be big. It's going to be a showman. But even so, none of those rallies were that large. Like, even if he went with his overestimated numbers, he still that's he still didn't see 74 million people. Like, I guarantee yeah. that. In all of the rallies he did, he didn't see that many people. I think that he's just his whole life been able to say, this is so, this is a fact. And because he's rich, it works out that way for him. And he, when he did the apprentice, he was the, the guy in charge and he fired whoever he wanted. And it just, it, he's not used to things not going his way. He's rich. He says this building's worth $10 billion. It's worth $10 billion. And that doesn't work in politics. Not, not our should, system with uh, all the checks and balances. And that's what happened to him because I don't care for Pence. I don't care for anything that he stands for as a very conservative Republican. But he knew that he has a constitutional responsibility and there's nothing he can do to change that or to make it anything other than what it was. That's right. And for people who, for years and generations, Try talked about adhering to the Constitution. It wasn't. And, you know, you bring up checks and balances. The problem of it, of it is, is that man in, in his entire life, other than his father, had no check on him. No check on him. Because he had enough money, he could tie people up in, in, in lawsuits and things, and is trying to do it even today with the various things, suing people. And until he is held accountable, he won't be held, he won't be accountable, and that's the that's the biggest danger with him. Now you know you get into though I've got to be impressed with these people who had the nerve to do it, and so many of them were were young white women who had joined his thing in in their twenties and thirties, joined the Trump administration, and yet they were appalled by what happened that day. Cassie Hutchin was one of them. And they keep on uh, talking about some other people who also had uh, testified, just not publicly. Uh, Get out there and and put the country and the future ahead of their own well-being in some cases. I mean, you know, they had bought into into what he he had said, but but even they took their oath of office seriously. And the truth of the matter is that when you take that oath of office, as you know, you had to take a, take one. You had to take it twice. You had to take it for an officer. You had to take it take it as an enlisted person. So you, you know you know what, what that office is, and the president's basic uh, oath is identical to the to one you took. And he and all these other people took that oath at one time or another. And look at what happened. I mean, Giuliani had to take that oath when he was a federal prosecutor in New York. He knows what that oath is. They all do. And yet they're willing to do that, to, to do anything to hold on to power. 
we had Pat Cipollone, who was uh, in there for a long time and was the person, the number one person really there for everything. We had Bill Barr, the man who carried water for Trump even before he was selected to be attorney general. The man who did an interpretation of the Mueller report, this submarine, what Mueller was trying to do with that report. Because he took one brief part of it and wrote his whole thing on, and they called it an exoneration. And as soon as all of, his, all of the former president's supporters saw the exoneration, that just made things worse. Then you had the officials from Georgia and Arizona who testified on that. And yet, those people are talking about if Trump was the candidate again, they might vote for him, which is very, very sad for me. And then we get to what people kept calling the crazies. Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, and that other, other nut who, who put the coup on paper, Eastman. Mm-hmm. The former president listened to those people who were let's, spouting craziness rather than the people who were put in the government to give him the advice that they gave him. But he likes to hear what he likes to hear. And if he's going to listen to who's stroking his ego and who is telling him what he wants to hear. He under He's not an idiot. He acts like one, but he's not one. He understands what the base wants. He understands who's in the base. It's, it's white people, for the most part, that feel threatened by immigrants, people of different colors, women, all of that. And that he, 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 I don't even want to say he panders, but what they like about him is that he's not a rich politician that has been able to be successful and you they see these rich politicians as people manipulating the system getting paid a lot of money to not do a whole lot of work and make things hard for them because if they try to have a small business liberals want them to pay more taxes so they're not as successful if they could get tax breaks and so they align themselves with somebody that they they look at and consider made himself rich, which isn't true. If you really know Donald Trump, you know that he was born into that. He didn't make any of that. It was all there. He's probably lost more money than he's made. And he actually, when he was younger, was more, more liberal-leaning and not very Republican. He was sort of out of politics. He just wanted Hollywood to love him. And he's figured out how to get this love and praise and admiration that he's always wanted. So he's getting what he wants. He's telling them what they want. And he's letting a wackadoo like Steve Bannon tell him what to do and lead him in different directions. And that is how we got here. Yeah. In a way, he did, he, he did the same playbook that Adolf Hitler did to gain power. He wasn't accepted in, in by the, the rank and file, and he wasn't accepted by the rank and file of the upper elites in New York City. So he looked for somebody, people who would put him on that pedestal. And he got that with, with being in that apprentice thing and the celebrity apprentice and all those things. But one of the great things what this committee has done is they have set up a good 
view point by point of the timeline that he used. They sold him, Rudy Giuliani and others, and even, even Steve Bannon the night before the election on his podcast said what was going to happen. That the, 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 now the ex-president after that election would claim victory on that night because they knew the Republican votes were going to come in that day. And he and Bannon and everybody else knew there were going to be lots and lots of votes to come in after. But they figured we'll hit the claim victory now and then we'll fight it later. So that started out the first thing. At midnight, he claimed victory. He was ahead in many, many states. But in states like Pennsylvania, they could not even begin to count the votes until the polls closed. All those mail-in votes, all those kinds of things didn't happen until after they got all the day poll stuff in. And it took, as we saw, five or six days or more to get Pennsylvania alone, which was a major one on there. So when that, for, when that didn't work, and the networks and everything, including his favorite Fox News, said that Arizona had gone and their, their polling was better than anybody else's could do it so quickly. The next thing that they did was he got his crazies again, Giuliani, et cetera, Sidney Powell, and they started working on trying to say that there was fraud. And then something in the neighborhood of 61 cases or so, the only case they did was a little bit of a win in Pennsylvania, but the votes that they won on never were counted anyways. Every other one was, and they've said this much during these hearings, show us the evidence. Show us the evidence. And Giuliani and Eastman and Sidney Powell, none of them could ever show one iota of evidence. Bill Barr sent out people throughout the, out those, those battleground states to check for fraud. None of them came back. And these were all, again, Republican appointees that were out doing this. Republican people putting it out. Trumpsters in many cases. So when they lost all those court cases, the next thing he had tried to do was go after the DOJ. And when that when that didn't work with, with Barr, and he came back to the DOJ a little bit later, they uh, went after the of election officials, particularly in Arizona and really in Georgia. Unfortunately Georgia, for, yeah. for, for in Georgia was that Raffensperger had people on the line, including his lawyer, listening to this and taping exactly what happened. When you ask somebody, it's fine, fine. 11,000 and whatever number it was, which is one vote more than he needed. When you are that specific, you're asking somebody to do something illegal. You're asking them to subvert the will of the voters of the state of Georgia. The will of the voters, state of Georgia, we decided we did not want him to be president. And it wasn't a big big one, but it was over 11,000 votes. And he wanted Brad Raffensperger or the governor or the legislator or somebody to overdo it. The sad thing on that is they did the right thing, but then they encouraged and the legislature came out with new voting laws, limiting ballot boxes. In some of these rural counties, there's one ballot box for a large area. People are poor. They don't have cars. It's going to be very difficult for them to get there. And they can't, nobody else can put the ballots in there for them. And they have to be uh, 
in an area that is monitored. So only when the polls are open are they going to be able to do it. When the, when the election areas are open, will they be able to deposit them? But the worst thing of all, worst thing of all, was they allowed the legislature to remove local election officials without having to give any real reason, regardless of the party, regardless of the votes, regardless of anything, and give the legislature a chance to override the will of the people. That is horrible. And then we get yeah, to so get to that, that is, meeting. Yeah. Let's say that's that's disturbing. You know, there's they 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 know what the system is. It's why he wanted them to stop counting in states where he was ahead on election night and the next day and keep counting where he was behind. Like he knows. Mm-hmm. Oh, he knew like, he knew everything. It, he knew, he lost. Yeah. And it, the it, next thing it, go ahead. As I say, it's upsetting because everybody wants their vote counted, and they knew they were going to be counting everything for this election. There's no, oh, well, it's there's no way that these absentee ballots can beat what, what this differential is. They had in every state to count everything. And that's another point. They never had any problems with the votes in states that he won. They never wanted mm-hmm. those voting machines checked. They never wanted those recount, you know, and even in states where his Republican senators did well and he did poorly. They didn't have a problem with the ballot machines for those races. Just That's right. You can't have it all. Right. You can't have it all one way or the other. He lost, I mean, they showed in many cases there was a huge number of difference between his votes and the local and state Republican votes. For, for Republicans did actually far better than we would want in the, uh, in, in the states particularly all these states like Georgia, et cetera. Then we get into that big meeting where they wanted to put a different attorney general in. There was a guy who said, we'll do this, then we'll go back to the state. And this guy circulated a letter, and the letter, they said, no way will we do that. And then they get in that that huge... Jeff Jeff Clark, is that his name? Yeah, it was Clark, yeah. I, I think it was Jeff Clark. Yeah, and he would made a back backdoor deal on it essentially, but that did not work, and he did not want. He he realized he could not have. It wouldn't work anyways. Uh, a, Saturday, a Saturday night massacre like there had been with Nixon, and he when they refused to go along with that. And they would resign, and they had talked to everybody, and they told one guy not to because they needed him in a special spot. But all the other deputy attorney generals, all the heads of of departments were going to resign. He would be left with no justice department except this guy. That would not, not have been good. So back and forth they went, yelling, swearing, I guess, all kinds of things on there. And then the guy who was, for some strange reason, the guy who was uh, the founder of Overstock was in that meeting. I never figured out like that. like the my, my pillow guy. Yeah. I don't know how these strange people get in there either. But they went in there and they finally decided it wasn't going to be there. And after everybody left at about one, one o'clock and something, he puts out that tweet. The tweet that began January 6th being what it turned out to be. He said they're going to have a big rally on the ellipse. Be there. We'll be wild. And that came into fruition. It was wild. 
Well, not I, in the way. The way, way again. But all the traffic that I saw, the people that were planning to go, they were preparing for war. There's no surprise to me how it went. I think that some of the things that, that people were far too willing to give him a pass until Cassidy Hutchinson started talking about what they had heard over the words and over the, the police uh, radios and things about weapons in the crowd. He was told about that, but he didn't like the amount of crowd that was there because those people weren't going to give up their weapons to get inside of that. And he told them to turn off the magnetometers there, whatever they are there, that were keeping metal things out, and let the crowds in because he said, they are not going to hurt me. I mean, when he acknowledged they had weapons, but they were uh, going to hurt him, why would they have, have uh, weapons? They had to hurt somebody. And that somebody was the members of Congress, including the vice president and the vice president's family was there. Other members had family there too. It was just a disgusting thing. And no matter what we say, we look at these, these things, and that the bag of people are not watching. They don't want to know about it. It's all a big partisan thing. But the truth of the matter is, we came within a hairbreadth. And now we throw in this latest uh, little tidbit about the Secret Service uh, migrating their phones and not saving messages from the 5th and 6th which is a scary, scary thing because the people do it. And the two of the people who are doing it was the head of Trump's security serve, uh, security and the head of Pence's security. We'll never know. Yeah. And the fact that Pence insisted on staying there, waiting until they could do their job again, this thing that Pence acted presidential, Biden acted presidential, and the president sat there for 317 minutes. No, 187 minutes, excuse me. Three, yes, three hours, 17 minutes, 187 minutes. Sat there reveling in what was going on. Actually doing that. And then the tweet about Pence was unforgivable. I, there was I every found, approach. Go ahead. Do you remember in the hearing how they said that uh, when they, Mark Milley, they, when they showed his testimony, he said that he was told that the narrative was that Trump was controlling this. I found mm -hmm. um, a screen cap from January 6th that I have on my phone that said that Trump has called in the National Guard, which is a lie. It was Pence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of, of little ways that they can prove that he didn't do anything. They already did. He was sitting in the dining room pouting, watching, calling senators while the senators are trying to not die. Yeah. Uh, what bothers me, McCarthy and uh, McConnell both put the blame where it should be right after. Not so much McConnell, but certainly McCarthy was back there and, as we said, kissed the ring within a week after that. Yeah, because, you know, I guarantee he was threatened. I, they were all mm -hmm. threatened. We know, we knew, how, what was it, three years ago? 
four years ago when Michael Cohen testified, this man works like a mafia boss. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I think has gone on behind the scenes. It's exactly why a lot of people that have retained their own, own lawyer won't answer phone calls from him or his people because he's going to call and have some sort of threat or some reminder of something that he's done for them or can do for them. Yeah. And the, the final thought on this really is the suffering that people have gone through for doing the right thing. Whether they were testifying for this, whether they like Pence and doing the job the Constitution provided for him to do, two election workers that were just doing the right thing, provably the right thing, when you saw the whole bit of, of, of video, not just a little thing that showed something being passed and forth that turned out to be mint, that their lives were turned upside down for doing the right thing. And all these people had to live with the threats of these people, death threats. It's disgusting. Our democracy is a threat. If he is not held accountable this time, I don't think we stand much of a chance of keeping our democracy. And I don't want to see that happening for your kids, Ryan's kids, our grandchildren, and all the other grandchildren and children throughout this nation and throughout the world. We are supposed to be that shining light on the hill and we are not doing that if we don't make him held to be held accountable. And those like people like Giuliani, Eastman, Sidney Powell should never be able to practice law again. They violated their, their oath to the constitution. So any closing thoughts you have? No, no not at this time. Okay. And we'll be back talking more about that day, perhaps in the future. We also want to talk about how 51% of the population in this country are quickly losing all their rights. And I think you can guess what the 51% is. So thank you for listening and reviewing. God bless you. God bless our great country's legitimate leaders and God bless and protect our troops where they are. Have a great afternoon, people. Goodbye.